Welcome back to the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talk to Aisha Akhtar. Aisha is a neurologist, public health specialist and author. She's president and CEO of the Centre for Contemporary Sciences. She worked for the Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats for the Food and Drugs Administration and served as Lieutenant Commander in the US Public Health Service. She's a fellow of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. Aisha wrote the book Animals and Public Health, Why Treating Animals Better is Critical to Human Welfare, and you can find her TED Talk on that subject online too. I'd love to know what you think of this podcast as a whole, so why not write us a review or give us some stars on your listening platform? Every share, review, and rating helps us nudge a few more people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info or just search for sentientism on your favorite social media platform. You'll be made welcome in any of our global community groups. They're open to anyone interested, not just sentientists. Why not follow us on Twitter too, at sentientism. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Aisha. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. How are you doing this morning? Very good, very good. Thank you so much for taking the time to join this series of sentientist conversations. It's great to have you here, and it's going to be interesting to hear about your philosophical journey and the work you do now to try and make the world a better place. Thank you so much. This is going to be an interesting chat for me as well, because it's a slightly different angle from what I've been doing in the past. So I'm excited to do this. Yeah, great. Cool. And so as we talked about before, this series of conversations are really about what I think of as the two deepest philosophical questions. What's real? How do we understand the universe and what matters morally? And I have a clear and obvious bias, which is in the title, because I'm trying to recast and build community around this really simple worldview called sentientism, which says that when we're thinking about what's real, the best way of working that out imperfectly, uh, provisionally and probabilistically is to use evidence and reason to try and understand the universe rather than taking a supernatural or a revealed or a magical approach. And when it comes to what matters, the clue is in the name that we should have a moral compassion, if you like, a moral consideration for all sentient beings, any being that has the capacity to experience suffering or flourishing. So that's my bias, but I'm talking to people who disagree and agree with that philosophy. So it'll be fascinating to hear your personal philosophical story. But before we get to those two deep questions, how would you best introduce yourself and your work for people that don't know you? First of all, sentient. I, I always have a hard time saying it's that. Too word. many syllables. Too, I've practiced, but yeah, it's the, I, the, the easiest way to think of it is sentient, and then put ism on the end, and that's sentient is that's, yeah. that's a good way. Yeah. <laughs> some American, some Amer- people with the sort of Mer- American linguistic background quite like sentientism, but uh-huh. yeah, I t- I tend to stick with sentientism. But yeah, too many syllables, really. If you've got any suggestions for a shorter version, a snappier <laughs> version, let me know. <laughs> no, no worries. And that helps. So I'm a, a neurologist and public health specialist by training. I spent 10 years working at the Food and Drug Administration, which is the regulatory body here in the US that oversees drug development. And then I was the deputy director of the Army's traumatic brain injury for a couple of years, a commander in the public health service, which most people haven't heard of, but it's one of the uniformed services here in the US. So we're, think of us like the public health arm of the military, although we're not military, but yeah. we're, we're the public health. So we go out when there are public health major threats and things like that, like with the pandemic. So yeah. 
in the U.S., a lot of public health service officers are deployed to assist with vaccinations, with testing, with care, things like that. And then most recently, about last year, almost a year ago, in just a few days, actually. The anniversary is coming up. Yeah, yeah. I moved over to head up a new organization called the Center for Contemporary Sciences. And our goal is to replace all animal experimentation with methods that are based on human biology. So in methods that are based on human biology. So instead of studying the biology of a rat, cat, a dog, or a monkey, which doesn't make sense when you think about it, to try to understand human diseases and, mm. and human biology, our goal is to move the biomedical research system, in a sense, into using testing methods that are based on human biology. So they're not only kinder, in the sense that they're not involving animal experimentation, which is incredibly cruel, but they actually have the great potential of being far more effective, far more predictive, far more reliable, and can really transform our understanding of our, the diseases that afflict us and help us really find the therapies that we need. So it's a win-win for humans and animals. Great. Thank you. And we'll come back to that in our final section, of course, when we talk about how can we move towards a more compassionate future too. And that plays in beautifully. So thank you for that introduction. So the first of these two deep questions is what's real. So for many of my guests, that's a story about whether they grew up in a naturalistic or an atheistic or an agnostic sort of household and society, or they grew up in a more religious, mystical, spiritual setting, and how their personal beliefs about you know, the nature of reality in the universe, such as it is, have shifted over time if they have. So that would be really interesting if you don't mind winding the clock back and telling us your journey on that. Sure. So my, my, my family's from Pakistan originally. Mm. And so my dad is a Muslim and my mom, so I grew up in, I'll say this. So my mom grew up in the U.S. as a teenager because Mm. her father was a diplomat. So she was westernized pretty early and she was never very religious. And so we, as kids, we were never really, we didn't grow up in a very religious household, even though my dad was Muslim, it was more cultural than anything else. And although we did a couple of events and things like that, but I have to admit, when I was 11 years old, (laughs) so I used to call myself a Muslim, but then I noticed even still how my dad used to treat the girls, my sisters and I differently from my brothers. Mm. You know, my brother could get away with wearing anything and us at the time wearing something that was a short sleeves or wearing shorts was a, he would get upset about that. And so when I was 11 years old, I walked into the house and I said, I, I denounce Islam. I'm no longer a Muslim. I'm no longer religious and everything because of just the complete disparity. And I saw that with family members and other things, the disparity in how women what women could do and what men could do. And yeah. so that's pretty bold at 11 years old. Yeah. There's, I, I made a lot of big changes when I was 11 years old, actually. <laughs> so um, <laughs> a lot of things happened at, around that age, but so I, so then it's, I guess I grew up in my sisters and family. We grew up, I would say probably I, at the time I believed in a God. And yeah. I think that's, what I would say, I, I believed in the God, but I wasn't part of any organized religion. And, and that's, of course, you also at the same time as a kid, 
I had some of that magical thinking. I used to think that I saw a unicorn on the top of the water tower and things like that, yeah, yeah. which always made the, the world more exciting. But as I got older and older, I, I, I did transition. I would say that I'm an atheist now, uh, actually, because it's, it, it's hard for me to wrap around because the concept of a God is a very human-made concept. Yeah. And, and the uh, more religions you understand, the more clear that becomes, to my mind, oh, anyway. Yeah. Right. Why one God versus the multiple gods some religions have? And you get into all the differences between religions, and every religion thinks it's right. The followers of each religion think they, they have the answers, they're right, and so on. And it just logically, it doesn't make sense to me. And it yeah. is very much a human concept, the idea of a God. Now, I won't deny that. I would love to think that there was some great being who was looking out for my interests and that sort of thing. But why my interests over someone else's? You, you think when you start questioning it, why would a God care about me and not someone else who's living a miserable life, right? Yeah. You know, what, that kind of thing. So there, there's just so many illogical aspects when you think about believing in a God and believing in a religion. But I will say, I understand why people do. Yeah. I, I do. I do understand that. I, it's comforting to think that there is some, some, there's some purpose, greater purpose in life and greater purpose in your life. And that there is, whether you believe in a God or gods, that's having some kind of governing control over the universe. And that, that so I, I think it helps people feel less lost. Yeah in the world. And so I, I do understand why people do cling to that or just hold on to religion and, and why they want to believe in, in a God or gods. Yeah. You can feel, appreciate the pull of it. And one of the things I've found interesting is that <clears throat> there's a degree to which there's a bunch of stuff that comes bundled with a sort of religious way of thinking in a sense. And it's like a quite a handy package. It's meaning, value, moral structure, community, uh, a sense of destination, a sense of awe and wonder and miss all of these wonderful things. And, and quite sometimes it feels like if we move to a naturalistic or an atheistic standpoint that you and I share, you just leave all of that and we don't need it. We just go to a cold scientistic. It's, now, hold on a minute. I, I think I can find ways in a completely naturalistic worldview of having all of those things. I can have community and love and a sense of purpose and a sense of awe and wonder and a sense that everything is connected. And so I, I think we can rebuild all of that stuff in a, in a completely naturalistic mindset, but it, it doesn't happen like that. You have to put the effort in. And I sometimes think that people who are in, in the non-religious sort of worldview mode of thinking sometimes forget that those things take work. But yeah, that was interesting. No, I agree with you. I think I don't, I don't see my life as lacking meaning and... Yeah purpose and community. And there's a new community that I built around people who share some of the same values that mm. I do about compassion and so on. And yeah, it's a, I think a lot, those elements, you're right. It, people think that if you don't follow a religion, then you are absent of those parts in your life that you want to have. Yeah, it, It's funny because my husband, he was raised Catholic. And the one thing he does miss, he's atheist as well. And, mm. But the one thing he does miss is just community of going to church. Yeah. And the neighborhood, everyone. And the together. ritual and the singing and the architecture. and the Yeah. 
Well, yeah. the architecture, yeah, he he still appreciates that. We go around yeah. traveling and looking at the architecture. But yeah, the, that community sense that he had when he was growing up. But you're right. I think there is, it's just replacing one set of values with another. That's it. But everything else can still come along with it. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was interesting how you described it, because the conversations I've had, um, some people grew up in a naturalistic worldview and you know, are still there now. But most of my guests, like most people on the planet, start with a religious default and then have moved away. Most of my guests have moved away from it. And it's an diff- interesting balance because for some people, it's a, more of an ethical thing. And for some people, it's more epistemology and facts and evidence and reason. And for you, it sounded like the initial trigger was actually an ethical thing. We're saying, look, this is unfair that I can't wear a skirt or short sleeves. or you know, And that was the initial trigger, although you were still left thinking there's a God, but that left led you to move away from, or, you know, denounce Islam. <laughs> but then it was more of an intellectual thing about evidence, reason, and consistency. In fact, just not stacking up, that then led you to move to atheism. So it was interesting that there was a bit of a balance, but there seemed like there was a sequence there. Because for some, it's very much evidence, reason, facts, I reject it. And for others, it's these ethics, just I don't agree with them. And that's the trigger. But Yeah, uh, I think it's even when I, I didn't completely move away from the ethics, even when I was thinking more logical, mm. logically. So it, it was always part of my way of thinking, because again, I, I just started thinking, if there is a God who cares about us, why is there so much suffering? The same question so yeah. many people have, and, and just how, even when I just think of the suffering that we cause to animals, how can that, you know, be part of a, a worldview that any divine entity could allow and so it uh, yeah. just how can you be omnipotent omniscient omniscient and benevolent and create that just doesn't stack up something's got to give yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and one of the, one of the other interesting things about the, about the journey is as with topics we'll come on to later on about thinking about non-human animal ethics and others often there's yes there's logic but there's also social norms and pressure and co- constraints as well so what sort of response did you get when you denounced Islam at 11 years old? Was it quite an easy transition where your family were okay? Or was it, were there difficult aspects to it? Or how did you find that the sort of social side of that shift? I, I think it was actually, it's a good question. I think my parents were used to me being the, in a sense of black sheep of the family. I questioned yeah. everything. When I was young, I would question everything. And I think that was, there was no problem with my mom. I can tell you that. She's, she says she's more of a Buddhist. If she had to pick a religion, she would be more Buddhist than anything else, but mm. she's not religious of herself. My dad, I think it was more of, it's not the, the religion itself that bothered him. It was, it still was me refusing to abide by his dress code. Yeah. I, I think that was the problem with him. Yeah. But yeah, I think otherwise, no, I know you would think that there would be a bigger deal made in the family, but not so much. And it, it seems to vary enormously. So my, my, my experience was I came from a very sort of anodyne Anglican Christian background, like many people do here. So it was unremarkable. Like you said, we went to you know, church a couple of times a year. It wasn't really a central part of our life. It was more like a cultural affinity. And I did have a default belief that I guess this stuff must be true. But then I was a bit later than you, started to question that. But my journey out of it was you know, pretty easy and unremarkable. It still surprises me how it took a few years to get my head around it and get used to it, even though there was really no social pressure or constraints on me at all. And then, of course, other people have a, a radically different 
story and journey. And I've spoken to a, a couple of people, one, John Adenate, who was a Sunday school teacher in Nigeria in a, you know, totally full on evangelist church where the church was the center of the community and their family's identity. And that journey was very challenging. And another interview I haven't released yet with Yasmin Mohammed, who has had an absolutely shocking experience of leaving Islam and given the family context she was under as well. So it's amazing the sort of range of, for some people, it's reasonably easy. For some people, it's a full-on life-changing trauma. But yes. So, Jamie, can I interrupt you one second? I've yeah, got my little kitty cat who's very messy. If she gets very upset if she can't get up on the table. Well, <laughs> if she's there, she should come and join. We, we have quite a few non-human sentient beings making guest yeah. appearances. I, sh- I can introduce her to Luna if we need to. So. <laughs> she usually does. She can't. This table is a little high for her to jump up on. So I think she was trying to get me to help her up here. Lift but her she, up. She walked away. But Let's she'll still come back. Anyway. We'll see if she makes an appearance, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so that's a fascinating story. Thank you. And the second deep question I like to ask is what matters morally? And obviously there's quite often a link because if someone come, grows up in a sort of religious worldview, that often shapes their moral framework too. And one of the reasons people are sometimes hesitant about moving away from a religious or a supernatural worldview is because they're worried they're going to lose those moral foundations because much as you or I might question the uh, epistemology or the you know, ethical quality of those worldviews, there's at least some clarity, right? There's a deity that will judge you and punish you in this life and maybe the next. There's lists of rules in the Quran or the Bible or wherever that you can follow and obviously interpreted and random. But there's at least something to look at. You can say, okay, that's what is good or bad. And when you move away from that, many people find that a little disturbing. So in that context, how would you describe what matters to you morally in terms of what's good and what's bad? For some people, there is no real grounding to that morality. For some people, it's more relativistic. For other people, it's more about suffering and flourishing. How would you describe your, the grounding of your morality if there is one in a naturalistic uh, world? Yeah. So I will say it doesn't, a lot of those, those morals and the ethical rules that are created in religion, you, you can bring them, carry them over. There's no, they were created for a reason and many of them are really good. And, yeah, you just know, bring the good ones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think for me, it's really about living a life that causes the least amount of harm possible mm. and causes the greatest amount of joy possible. Yeah. I, I don't know yeah. if that makes sense. It's not, it's, so it's not just the negative of not doing something, it's the positive. Trying to live my life in a way that brings joy to others, brings compassion and to others. So that is as simple as that. Yeah. It's so simple. We don't, people think things have to be so complicated. My God, it doesn't. It is simple. Yeah. It really is. And others include non-human beings. They include animals. And so of course it includes animals because they're, they feel, they have the emotions. They, they're part of this world in which we live in. So I think it's hard for me to wrap my head around why people might find it so complicated, but yeah. That, yeah. I totally agree, agree with you because the, of course we live in a complicated world and there are many difficult problems to solve. So we're, I'm not pretending that all of those problems are easy, Yeah. but the basics of moral good and bad seem to me almost self-evident. And I, I'd agree with everything you've said, because I think once you put a supernatural ethic to one side, Almost definitionally, unless you're going to pick up some weird version of morality, and there are some out there, morality to me seems to be just the decision to care about others 
And what you mean, what that means to me is if you care about others, you care about their perspective and their perspective is joy, pain, suffering, flourishing, whether they're being harmed or all of those obvious things. And it doesn't make sense to exclude any being that has a perspective, i.e. has the, that sentient capacity for suffering and flourishing from our moral consideration. So it seems almost trivially obvious to me. And that, there's many fascinating philosophical things you can dig into about how, okay, what if interests trade off in different ways, or there are certain conflicts, or there are political problems, or should we look at rights or dignity or personhood or capabilities? Or, and I'm like, yeah, that's all fine. Go for your life. Fight over it, work on it. Maybe I'm not clever enough to understand it, but let's at least agree the basics. As you say, harm and joy and suffering and flourishing seems to be foundational. Yeah, so I think we're going to struggle to disagree on much there. And in a way, that is central to this idea of sentientism, which is just recognizing that, in a way, the root of all moral value and therefore all value in my mind is actually in the quality of the experience of sentient beings. It's joy and suffering and flourishing and pain and um, existential angst and a sense of awe and wonder. But anyway. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. My sister is a, a philosopher and I'll say, all right, you go on into the little details <laughs> of all the nuances of things. But it's like you said, as long as you start with that basic view and assumption, then you can at least know that even if your decision, whatever decision is made when there's a conflict between two groups, for mm -hmm. example, you're at least you are doing making your best effort to look at the perspectives from both sides and incorporating their needs and their lives and their desire to be free from harm and to flourish, like you said. So I think we if we can just even get there, <laughs> just to, to that one level way of thinking, it, there's so many of the world's problems, honestly, would be solved right there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think that's part of my frustration with, I guess, the whole intellectual world and philosophy itself, is that 90% of the effort seems to have made some pretty basic assumptions that I think are wrong about which beings warrant moral consideration. And now they're onto all sorts of crazy detailed abstract trolley problems about trading off purely human interests. And they seem to have skipped over this fundamental fact, which to me and you is self-evident, that all suffering matters and all sentience matters, not just human as well. So I find that frustration because I do agree with you that yeah. fixing these foundations doesn't make the world a perfect place. There will still be harm, there'll be suffering, there'll be challenges, there'll be intractable problems maybe, but it at least gets rid of the really most obvious egregious stuff where we are needlessly causing harm. And if we can't agree together that needlessly causing suffering is a moral negative, then it's frustrating. It's frustrating. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you. So if one thing that's frustrating for me is that in the scientific world, I'll see papers about the ethics of using mini growing mini brains in the lab. Can they become conscious brains yeah. and so on? And I get that question. I do. But these are the same folks who never bring up this question when it comes to using animals in yeah. the lab. Or there are questions about AI and, and the, the morality of different aspects of AI. But again, we don't, it's the elephant in the room, literally, yeah. in a sense, right? Yeah. Are, why aren't we addressing not what's theoretical, but what is real in front of us right now? Why are yeah. we not addressing this issue? Yeah, I find it amazing. And again, it's one of my personal bugbears is that, as you say, these topics are intellectually very interesting and maybe ethically interesting as well. 
But for the same individual to be open-minded about the uh, ethics of artificial sentience or alien sentience or plant sentience or the whether we should give rights to rivers or caring about the ecosystems and species and caring about potential human organelles that might develop sentience or the list goes on, right? These are all fascinating topics. While then having a bacon sandwich in the morning from a, made from the torture and killing of a being that is very obviously viscerally, directly sent in a way that is mm. blindingly obvious. No, I find it difficult. But at the same time, I, have, I, I try and have compassion for those people because it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago when I was also one of those who was compartmentalizing the way I thought. But it, it would be interesting to know your journey on that side of the story as well, because it's very clear where you stand now that non-human animals and you know, their capacity for sentience is what's required for moral consideration. That's important to you. So you've broken that barrier down. But how early did you come? Was that another thing that you declared at 11 years old? Or how did you go through that journey? So the journey actually started not on a, a nice note, in a sense. So I was, I was being abused, sexually abused by an uncle when I was a child. And when I was 11 years old, my grandparents, who lived very close by, adopted a dog, Sylvester, the first animal I ever came to know. And I just, we just... I mean, fell in love with each other. He truly Bonded. was my best friend. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I was his mom, in a sense, his best friend, everything. And then at one point, Sylvester was, yeah, I came across finding out that Sylvester was being abused by yet another uncle. He was being physically abused. And anyway, the journey was that it was his abuse that really got me to have the courage, I, I, I think, in a way, because his abuse bothered me more than mine. So I ultimately stood up and voiced my disapproval in a, in a not unclear way about his abuse, took a stand against his abuse. And doing so helped me to also take a stand against my abuse. So I saw from an early age, even if I couldn't intellectually Put it together in a concrete way, I grasped the similarities between what Sylvester was going through and what I was going through. In, yeah, in there was like a ways. solidarity there already. Yeah. yeah. And, and I saw the vulnerability in Sylvester. And at least I had a voice. Some, as, as much as even though I was a child, I still had a voice. And Sylvester had nothing. And so he was, it was important for me to stand up to him. And I also, Obviously, bonding with Sylvester, I saw the emotional capacity. I saw what these, he's, that animals suffer and can love and have great pleasure in life and so on. So that kind of started the journey. And then we adopted cats later on in life. We fell in love with, oh my God, how much we fell in love with our cats. But we still ate animals at the time. And it wasn't until we accidentally got some literature in the mail. My, my sister had tried to written out for some information, thinking it was an environmental group. It actually ended up being PETA. And what it was that we got information about what happened to one cow. And it was just one cow's journey, in a sense. And it was horrible. It, the story was horrible and the poor suffering that this cow went through and it completely opened our eyes. And actually my family together went vegetarian that evening. Wow. Yeah. And uh, because we saw, oh my God, we love our cat so much. And we, we immediately got that connection. How, what's the difference between our cats 
and a cow. And then from there, I started reading everything about animal ethics, animal rights, everything. The Peter Singer, Tom Regan, every everyone else out there, and it, I, I started to see that the true connection between really almost all of the ethical issues that we might come across in yeah. this world. I saw the connection between women's rights and animal rights and civil rights and so on. And it, it made perfect sense. And the idea of extending our compassion and our, the rights or however you want to talk about what that means, but to other beings made perfect sense to me. And it was the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, and it's a very unusual shift to make because wouldn't it be great if a, a leaflet and just the raw fact of animal farming and fishing just did that to people, right? It, it took me decades to even get to where I am now. But for your whole family to make a switch on an evening, that's pretty rare, pretty distinctive. It is. I, now, I will say, okay, so I will say that my father <laughs> bought it for a while. My <laughs> yeah. brother did too. Yeah. But my mom was a cook, so they had to yeah. go bite it. But they, they loved animals, but it was it still was difficult for them to make that immediate connection between yeah. loving their cats and what's on their dinner plate. Yeah. And there's another there's another interesting link there as well. And I'm sometimes worried that I'm being too, you know, naive about drawing links between the sort of religious journey and the animal ethics journey. But it does seem like there's a link there because in both cases it seems to me that a calm, logical application of the facts leads you to pretty obvious outcome directly. But the main problem is the social norms and the traditions and the pattern of indoctrination that holds people in a way of thinking. And obviously, you've, I guess one, one way you guys worked that through is as a family, you did it together. But did, it, did that feel difficult in terms of socially or more broadly as a family? Was it something that was looked on as a strange thing to do or so for in, in the Pakistani community, you, especially this was back in the 80s, being a vegetarian was unheard of. So it was hard. And that especially for my dad, because he is all about being accepted. Yeah. And so my mom didn't care as much, to be honest. But for my dad, it was. And as a kid, again, back in the 80s, when this wasn't, it's not today. So I, I would may be made fun of by other kids and stuff like that. To be to be honest, Jamie, I honestly I didn't give a damn what other people thought, really. I think that was there was There's something... a theme amongst some of my guests as well. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yep, I just I, did it and that was yeah. I knew it was right. I didn't care. I, I didn't care what other people thought. Yeah, I would love it if they agreed. And that's what I wanted. It's not that I care so much about what they thought about me. I cared about what they thought about the issue. Yeah. But but what they thought about me, I didn't care. I, why would I care? Who, who are they to me? And honestly, it just, I, like I said, I've always been very independent. I was a kid, Jamie, this, I was such a nerd. I was a kid who, my best friend, Claudette and I, we were girls, teenagers. We weren't out looking for boys. We would go for long walks talking about the universe and, and science and things like that. We were not your typical girls at the time. So I just, I've always been that way. It's gotten me into trouble, not yeah. giving a damn about what other people think many imagine. times in my life, but that's how I've always been. Yeah. yeah, yeah, cool. No, it's a fascinating story. Thank you. So I think we've got a pretty clear view of what you think is real and how we should work that out about what's, what matters morally and you know, at least the foundations of 
the scope of our moral consideration and what types of things warrant our compassion. And I guess the final section really is, in fact, before we come on to the final section, which is what's about the future, given your background in neurology and science generally, one of the other challenges people will put in front of sentientism and say, look, okay, you're saying sentience is the foundation for or the, the only characteristic that's required for granting moral consideration. So it's centrally important to sentientism, of course. But they'll say, look, but we don't really understand what sentience is. We don't really understand consciousness. Um, it's a fuzzy topic. It's uncertain. Many people find that uncertainty another way to introduce mysticism and you know magic and quantum weirdness into it. So they're almost questioning, surely we shouldn't base our moral system on sentience until we know more about it. Now, my view is, in a way, I, I don't really care what the essential nature of sentience is. I still think it's morally salient because I don't like suffering and I'm pretty sure other sentient beings don't either. But at the same time, it is absolutely fascinating given the naturalism of sentientism to really understand sentience. What, what do you think sentience is? What do you think consciousness is? I didn't prime <laughs> you with that question, but given your background, I've, I've, I thought I'd ask. There's always the road answer is being self-aware. And then of course, what does that mean? And then you could keep every question and every answer then you can ask another question about that answer that takes you deeper and deeper. I don't know. And I don't think anyone does know. Again, it's a made up construct. It's our, it's we're, we're trying to define something ourselves. So it's how we decide to define it, really. Yeah. It's a human made construct. For me, the test is again, whether being can suffer. Yeah. And yeah. that that really is what it comes down to. And that it, it, there's not a lot of mystery around that. You can see whether a being can suffer. You can see that. There's, so with most beings, with most non-human animals, you, there's a clear indication that they can suffer. And yeah. so there's no, really no question there. As far as we, one thing I would say as a neurologist is what I have come to see is how much our personalities, our view of the world, our our being in a sense in a whatever mystical way you want to say it our sentience and so on all those things is really very much tied in with our anatomy oh, yeah. and it, we like it's i've seen patients who've had um strokes or some some kind of neurological impact that can completely alter significant parts of their personality and so it's it, we are very much tied in our non-physical part of who we are is very tied in with the physical part of who we are. And so that gets lost in these conversations as well, I think. We like to think that we're so much above the physicalness of us, but yeah. we're actually very, who we are, what kind of person you are, is very much tied into that. So I, I know this is sounding very vague. I don't know how to say this really well, but I think that needs to be incorporated into the discussion too, because we're not these, you know, when we think about consciousness, we, a lot of that is tied into the physical reality of our yeah. brains and how well they're functioning. So it's, there's a lot of variation there. And it feels like so much thinking in this space is led astray by this sense that we just feel too special to just be physics. So that leads you to look for something beyond the physical. And other sentientists will disagree, right? Because sentientism just says naturalism and then have compassion for all sentient beings. It doesn't say, you know, what sentience is or 
So sentientists disagree with each other on many different things, but we all agree to take a naturalistic approach and follow the science. Where I think the science leads is that sentience really is just, and consciousness, are just classes of information processing that run in our neural architecture. And I think they evolved because maybe around the Cambrian or slightly before, it became evolutionarily useful for an entity to be able to develop a model of itself and others and the environment for it to, and have a sort of valence around those sensations and those models that would drive it to avoid bad stuff and head towards good stuff. So I think that's the sort of evolutionary drive that led to it happening. And I think architecturally, it's just a class of information processing. And this sense that it's something separate, I just don't see any evidence for it. And I think, you, as you imply, if you have even a basic experience with dementia or brain injuries or adjustments to the brain or the genetic influence on the brain, it leads you at the very least to recognize there's a crazily tight coupling between the physics of the mind and the experience of the mind. And I think that tight coupling is ultimately so tight that there is no, no distinction at all. I think that sentience just is the running of that information processing in the same way as PowerPoint on my desktop just is the code running. There's no, <laughs> and a snap to grid is, and a line center are amazing things. It's hard to get your head around if you don't understand the code. But there is nothing separate. It's just the code. Like I say, other sentientists will disagree. But no, I think it. I'm, I'm like I'm like one of those people who likes to think that there is more to us than that. But I'm probably going to agree with I agree with you. I think it's a hypothesis anyway. Yeah, we are very. I like the way you phrased it. The coupling of the physicalness of who we are with the. How, how else did you put? It? I forgot what what the other word was, but oh. the experience. Of yeah, with that, the experience. You know, yeah. yeah. It's very much true. It's true, I would say, across all beings as well. And I've, I've, and I've been looking into some fascinating work by a chap called Thomas Metzinger, who you're probably familiar with. He's done a lot of work about neural correlates of consciousness. But one of the, I just watched a YouTube video that he did where he's done research digging into really deeply the reported experiences of meditation as a way of trying to understand, at least in a human context, what is the minimal experience of consciousness. And that's an experience I think many people find in meditation ultimately is that they get to a certain stage where they recognize that thoughts are just emerging and fading away, including the thoughts about observing the thoughts. And you can almost get this sense that, yeah, I'm just, there is just information processing going on. And you can almost lose this sense that there's a independent observer that is magically separate from the physics that is observed, you know, anyway. It's a bit of a tangent, but like I say, it's not central to sentientism, but I find it intellectually fascinating. And, and that's my hypothesis at the moment, but I'm always open to new evidence. So if someone can demonstrate that it's possible to have any form of consciousness that is not bound to information processing, then I'm looking forward to learning about it. Yeah, it, it is a fascinating topic. And it's, it's something that is of Star Trek and next generation kind yeah. of topic, which a show I just absolutely love. Well, I think we yeah. share a love of sci-fi as well. And that brings us yeah. neatly onto the final section of the conversation, <laughs> which is thinking about the future. So in a way, I like to try and set a fairly optimistic cast and some of my guests will slap me down and pull me back to something more grounded. But in a way, one way of asking the question is we, we've talked both on the sort of ethics side and the naturalism side that one of the biggest breaks is just social norms and indoctrination patterns. But if we imagine we could click our fingers and have 7.8 billion people one, take a more naturalistic view of the world, and two, have a broader compassion that recognise all suffering matters. I guess one question is, what could that future look like? And you can go as sci-fi, Star Trek, 
as you like. And the second part of the question is, okay, in more practical terms, how can we get there? And it would be fascinating to dig into your work at the Centre for Contemporary Science as, a, as an example of one of the things you're trying to do to make the world a better place. But yes, yeah, do you want to start with that vision of what the future might look like? If we can get I more think, people to agree with us. Yeah, I think that's why I love Star Trek Next Generation, because it was such a an optimistic future. And the, at least among humans, that they were so much more of a thinking, compassionate. You could see how we've, in, in that, in the program, how the division is of who we can become, right? Yeah. With embracing a, a, a worldview that encompasses ethics for all and a more logical way of thinking about things. So for me, not only can we get there, we have to get there for our own survival. It's, and I'll, I'll bring it down to real world examples. This pandemic started because of exploitation of animals. Yeah. The, we are likely going to get more and more pandemics because of exploitation of animals, whether yeah. it's coming from factory farms in which the influenza virus, which can cause bird flu, swine flus, we've been lucky so far, but they can really, they can be far deadlier than what we're facing right now. And, or if we, or through the wildlife trade as we're continuing and the wet markets, the live markets in China is just one end result of the wildlife trade. Every mm -hmm. country is involved in the wildlife trade pretty yeah. much. And the U.S. is and Europe and UK are some of the biggest importers and exporters. So, and on the, it, on, on the pandemic, yeah. many people have been quite comfortable to say, oh, it's about bats and pangolins and wet markets. Yeah. But when you talk about swine flu and bird flu, you know, uh, and, and other historic examples, it's not just wet markets, right? It's standard industrial ag animal agriculture as well. And, and we had, you know, BSE here in the UK. There are so many examples. Sorry. No, absolutely. And People aren't going to learn from this pandemic, unfortunately. And in a way, we're going to be getting off very quickly from this pandemic. And it, it wasn't enough to really be a wake-up call for people. And, and our media has done a terrible job, incredibly poor job. It's been, yeah. They should have been really honing down why we're getting these pandemics, and they haven't. And our public health agency should have been doing that as well, and they haven't. So a lot of balls have been dropped in a sense here. But so we're going to get more pandemics and it's going to take a big one and maybe one that affects children, unfortunately, before people really do wake up. But that's a real world example of why we're going to have to change because yeah. we're going to see the risk of pandemics. We're seeing environmental destruction and climate change, which will actually increase our risk for mosquito-borne diseases like Zika virus and so on other types of diseases. There's just so many repercussions from our current treatment of animals. Antimicrobial resistance is another everything looming that, crisis. Yeah, exactly. Everything. And in every, almost every way you can think of how we treat animals impacts us. And when we treat animals badly, it, it impacts us in a negative way. And I, I've studied this and it's very clear. And so we're going to have to change. We're going to have a, a different kind of view of other animals and other life on this planet and how we treat this planet if we want to survive as a species, if we want to have a life in which we are not terrified of the next pandemic constantly. And so 
I, I do see that we are going to change. It's because we have to. But I do think also, I, I have a theory that I think that empathy is very an, an innate part of who we are as a species, even though yeah. it's hard to believe at times. But, yeah. you can, but then you can see it. You can see the other times when the empathy comes out for the suffering of a community which, where most people may not even think about that community day to day, but then something horrible happens and then this outpouring of compassion happens. And so we see that. So it's part of who we are. And I believe empathy for animals is part of who we are too. And I actually do believe that's going to grow as we mature as a species. I kind of think of us as a species as we're very much in our adolescence, that we're very focused on ourselves. When you're an adolescent, you look at the world, uh, it's all about you. And you're not looking beyond yourself so much. And you're not looking at the larger world. So I, I see us as a species in that adolescent phase. Yeah. And so I think as we mature, though, that compassion, that empathy, that ethic that widens the circle, in a sense, or includes a larger circle is going to occur. Yeah. And I, I think you're right, because while I'm, you know, this frustration about these you know, harmful social norms is palpable and it's difficult because logic and clear information just isn't enough to drive change by itself. At the same time as that, I feel that frustration. I think you're right that there is a deep well of compassionate ethic that's just built into the you know, way we are as animals. And I think proto-morality evolved long before humans even existed for obvious reasons around kin selection and reciprocity and you know, tribal affinity and the fact that cooperating with other beings benefits the individual and its gene propagation. So we've got that sort of legacy We've got the cognitive ability to then pick that up and either make it worse or make it better and refine it. So there's a degree to which we can pretend we're somewhat more independent from that now. And that sort of natural history doesn't define morality at all, but at least it gives us the kit and the capability and the evolutionary recognition that collaboration and cooperation and therefore compassion and caring for others is, you know, not just a, something we've decided is a morally positive thing, but it, you know, also helps us as individuals and as a variety of species as well. So I, I, I have that balance of frustration about the social norms, but a positive sense that there is that latent well of compassionate ethic. And I think you're right, even about non-human animals, because almost everyone would say it isn't a negative thing to needlessly cause suffering to a sentient non-human being, right? So in a way, almost everyone agrees with this. In a way, the moral argument has almost been won. We've just got to find ways of helping people change their behavior to come in line. So it's a, it's a strange mix. And I think your point about animal farming and fishing and the way we relate to animals is important too, because I'm nervous about my own motivated reasoning because I see the ethical horror of, for example, animal farming and fishing and a lot of what's done in terms of testing and research. And I see that as an ethical horror. So obviously I'm, I have a motivated reasoning to want to find all of the other reasons why it's a bad thing that we should transition to end. But even when I try and account for that, the number of reasons are just overwhelming, as you've laid out beautifully, right? It's, this is not one of those tricky philosophical questions where we have a really tough call to make and it's trading off interests. It's basically just a win for the environment, for humans, for non-humans. And of course, there are things we've got to work through. There are people whose livelihoods are caught up in those industries. They have traditional resonance. But with a just transition to help, ending those practices just seems like a really obvious thing to go and do. But yeah, 
That's a, it's, <laughs> it remains a challenge. But it, in that context, it will be really interesting to know about what you're focusing on now with the Centre for Contemporary Science, because one of my other frustrations is even within the movements around, for example, veganism or animal advocacy, there's quite a lot of selection going on in terms of priorities and, and scope exclusion. So one of my particular bugbears is people within the animal advocacy or vegan movements, either because they have a supernatural worldview or because they have a sort of reverence for nature that they don't take, for example, wild animal suffering as a serious moral issue. Now, I'm not saying that's an easy problem to solve. Uh, I'm not saying we should prioritize it more or less than animal farming. I'm just saying we shouldn't exclude wild animals from our moral consideration as one topic. But another is the space you work in around the use of animals in testing and research. That's another area where a simplistic view would say, look, the use of animals in food is almost never about human survival or health, right? We just, in, in large part, apart from some isolated instances, in large part, we don't really need to farm or fish animals for food because it's not a survival issue. But they'll look at human medical research and say, ah, oh, but you know, there's, there is a real challenge, there's a conflict of interest there because we need drugs and we need these things for human health. There's a justification there. So it's fascinating that that's the area you focus on at the moment. So it'd be great to uh, understand the big picture of that space, its scale, the state of it, why you think it's important, and then why you clearly think it is a more tractable problem where we can work through some better alternatives. Yeah. Um, Sorry, that was a super long question. I should have just. No, no, checks. not at all. So, of course, I'm I'm focusing on an issue that is unpopular in in many ways, even within the vegan community, as you say, because it's just not as much of an interest for many people. But the thing about animal testing is, I don't deny that we have learned things from using animals. Of course, we have. How could we not have learned things from using animals? And I think in the past, maybe animals had a key role. Using animals had a key role in really understanding a lot of things about what basic biological mechanisms and so on. But whatever role they've had, we're beyond that now today, because now we really are looking at the subtle nuances of molecular biology and genetics. And there's just too many differences between species. There's too many differences within our own species, within among humans. And so Whatever role animals may have played in the past, the way I, I phrase it, it's the question, the question we have to be asking, what is the best way to understand human biology today? What's the best way to understand human diseases today? And there's more and more scientific literature that's coming out that really takes a hard look at this question and is really saying animal testing is not the best way that we need to move away from animal testing. We absolutely need to move away. We spend, we have spent too much time, too much research, too much of our resources, hundreds of billions of dollars worldwide studying cancer in rats. Some people say we've cured cancer in rats, studying Parkinson's in monkeys, studying strokes and spinal cord injuries in cats. And might I also say, these aren't naturally occurring diseases in these animals. Researchers created these diseases in these animals. And so we've, we spent so long doing these things. And yet when you look at the end result, for most diseases out there, there is no treatment. There is nothing out there. And even for the, the ones that we, in which we do have treatments, there's not a lot. There's, if you think about, look at Alzheimer's disease, we have nothing. 
really, to offer patients. If you look at Parkinson's disease, we have dopamine, which is decades old. We don't have much, much newer in, in the way of more effective therapies and anything really new to offer. If you look across a whole host of diseases, there's been a real stall, really, in, in creating drugs that are effective and that are, in a sense, revolutionary. Because even though new drugs are constantly being approved, m many of these drugs are just variations of already existing drugs. So there's a need to really rethink how we conduct research, how we investigate human diseases, and how we try to understand human biology. And in, in, when you put it in that way, it becomes very clear that we need to get back to studying human biology. And it makes sense, really. It really does. Why? To, if we're trying to understand human diseases, we need to understand human diseases, not artificially induce the disease in a cat in which that disease becomes different because it was artificially induced and it's in a cat's body. It's, in a, it's affected by the cat's physiology, the cat's genetics and so on. Mm. Yeah. You made an interesting point. Even within the human species, we're seeing increasing issues in research where because of the, you know, the demographics or the, the makeup of the test group, those findings aren't being more broadly applicable. And that's just within our species. You'd expect that yeah. challenge to be even deeper when you're spanning the species boundary. No, absolutely. And that's it's hypocritical. You see the calls that we need more diversity in clinical trials, right? So it's not just, forgive me, it's not just white men like you, yeah, 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 <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's brown women like me. It's children, it's elderly, it's people from all diverse backgrounds. And so it's there's not just college that. students, which are the normal it, target. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But and But at the same time, the same people who call for the diversity in clinical trials don't still have this mental block when it comes to thinking if there's so much diversity among humans that we need to include many different types of people in clinical trials what does that say about trying to extrapolate information from a completely different species but they mm. never go there they just don't want to go there but it so it doesn't make sense we need to move away from animal testing for our own health for our own benefit and this if is nothing else. And this is yeah. maybe a leading question, but again, there's, of course, when anyone feels the ethics of non-human animals deeply, there is always a risk of motivated reasoning, of course. But if you, and in a way, there's only one way you can ask this question, <laughs> but I'm going to ask anyway, if we could put the animal ethics stuff completely to one side and say, look, non-human animals, for example, have no sentience. They can't suffer. They can't experience anything. The awful experiments done on them have no ethical impact whatsoever, completely zero. The only concern we have is the efficacy of research. Do you think there would still be a, a strong argument for the types of innovation that you're suggesting that recenter? I know you can't answer yes. it a different way. But... No, 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 no. But that's, that's how some I, people I'm will being, challenge you, of course. I'm being absolutely truthful. And because I will say this, because the, the call to move away from animal testing and to focus on human biology is increasingly not coming from people who care about animal ethics. It's yeah. coming from other scientists. It's coming from the drug development world. It's coming from pharma. It's coming from many who are now recognizing it's not what we've been doing is not working. Yeah. It's not working well. We need to change things. It's so, a lot of progress in that. Yeah. Exactly. So, Jamie, in the US, and I think this is a statistics are probably similar elsewhere in the world. About 90 to 95% of 
of drugs and vaccines that are tried in humans fail, that are tried in clinical trials fail. Now, these are drugs and vaccines that pass animal tests. So they were found to be safe and effective in the animals that they were tried in. And when they get tried in humans, most of them fail. Sometimes they fail for economic reasons. But most of the time, the reason why they fail is because they're unsafe or ineffective in humans. So you've got a 90, just on, in the drug development part of things, of animal testing. And animal, is, animal testing is used for so many things. I, I, we can have a huge conversation about that. But just in drug development, you think about that huge failure rate in animal testing. So there's been increasing calls from biotech, from pharma, from others saying, we have to change things. We have to get away from studying animals. We have to start now using human biology-based testing methods to really overcome this ridiculously high failure rate. Yeah. Now, one thing, one thing I will say also, which is what a lot of people don't want to talk about, most of animal experimentation isn't to have a direct applicable benefit to humans. Most is what's considered basic research. And most use of animals is under this phrase, basic research. And this is the kind of research that's happening at academic centers, for example. And it could be anything. This kind of research could be the what happens with I they could be drug addiction research in monkeys, for example. Why are we doing drug addiction research in monkeys? Why? We have so many people who have drug addiction that we could be studying that we could, and, and we know it's more than just a, psych, a physical problem, it's a psychosocial problem as well, drug addiction. And so there's so many ways we can treat drug addiction. Why are we continuing to induce drug addiction? Why are we still studying tobacco in animals? We know what the effects of tobacco That's is. still happening now. Oh God, yeah, of course, yeah. Why are we still doing this in animals? That's mind blowing. There was a study in, I remember one study that I looked at that was not too long ago, in which the researchers would capture songbirds from the wild, bring them into the lab, scramble a part of their brain to see how that affects their ability to sing. So this is, there is so much research, even if you want, even for those who insist, you absolutely need animals. For those who insist you absolutely need animals to progress human health. There's a huge range of animal experimentation that is arguably, I don't know how anyone could still justify that use, how anyone could. And the other thing is, at least in, in most countries, in the US and you're in the UK, right? Yeah. Yeah. These are funded by our tax dollars. There, we are paying for this experimentation. I'd rather have my money go into something that's going to benefit me and not harm animals. And it's... It, it seems bizarre, and I, from the outside, my sort of simplistic dynamic would would assume I'd assume there's a lot of just inertia. This is just the way we've always done things, so we'll keep yeah. doing it, right? And even bright people, very intellectual people in the scientific world, will just keep doing things just because that's the way it's been done. I'd imagine there's also a degree to which the ethics boards and the approval processes that these research projects go through don't take the animal ethics side seriously enough if they do at all that mm -hmm. presumably they might raise a question if there's some sort of egregious deliberate torture going on but otherwise they're not really that interested in the amount of suffering it's just they're just animals and this is what we do and off we go and then there's also this sense from the outside of medical research is important for humans therefore whatever we do is justified 
But as you say, there's this enormous spectrum of different types of research and testing, some of which maybe you could argue there's a stronger justification for, and others it's just crazy. <laughs> but so I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting because you mentioned, I assumed it was another one of these situations where you had logic and evidence and reason and ethics, and then there's just this sort of dead weight of inertia and social norms in the same way as in the animal farming and fishing space. But it was interesting. You did say there are, there's pressure from within as well to shift. How do you feel those dynamics playing out? And am I characterizing it right about inertia yeah. and ethical standards and the moral weight or not of non-humans? Everything you said was, was spot on. And so, yeah, those ethics boards are just it's what people say. It's like the fox guarding the the hen. Yes. They're made of of people who do animal experimentation, and they don't really take the the suffering of the animals into really real account. They're just rubber stamps, approval boards. And yeah. there's a little tangent here, and I think this is a problem with more general morality as well. In that, I think people see a radical difference between causing extreme suffering because we're trying to learn something or we have a different reason and causing extreme suffering because I'm a sadist and I've just enjoy cruelty right now. Mm -hmm. And one of those is seen as moral and the other one is seen as sickeningly immoral and probably illegal, but the suffering is the same. Anyway, that's a tangent, but it seems to me strange that there's a, because we don't, because we're not deliberately, the, because the pain and the suffering isn't the point of the experiment, it's fine. It's, it's, no, you're right. So if we hear about someone out on the streets who bashes a cat's head and makes her paralyzed, yeah. the world goes up in horror. Yeah. But that's happening in labs all the time. And so you're absolutely right. It's how we intellectualize and justify things. But so as far as the scientific community, more and more people in the scientific community voicing the need for this change. It is happening and yeah. it's growing. And I think that's what's giving, uh, that's where we as an organization, the Center for Contemporary Sciences really comes into play because we're really working and building collaboration among these different scientific groups and voices to find a way to how can we make that shift happen? So more and more of us are recognizing that we need to make the shift. How do we do it? How do we overcome the barriers? How do we overcome the inertia? How, how do we overcome the cultural, honest, cultural bias within yeah. the biomedical community that still lingers, that protects the use of animals in experimentation? Not protects animals, but it protects the use of animals in experimentation. That they, there's so much money, honestly, behind. There are many front groups, for example, that lobby to continue the use of animals in experimentation no matter what. And so there, there's many things. So there's all so many barriers. How do we overcome those barriers? And so that's what we're doing as an organization is working with different, creating these partnerships to find strategic ways to overcome these barriers, to really yeah. move biomedical science in the direction it truly needs to go into. Yeah, fascinating. And it's, I don't know if this is a, I'm shoehorning a parallel here, but it feels like in the same way as when we look at animal farming and fishing, just moral hectoring from the outside isn't sufficient. We've got to find win-win ways of giving people the nutrition and the taste and the experience and the cost and the availability they want in ways that are less environmentally damaging and counter the human health issues we talked about and don't cause catastrophic suffering and death. Right. So again, it's shifting it to say, instead of saying, you're just wrong and evil, 
it, there's a win-win here. It feels to me like what you're doing with the Centre for Contemporary Sciences is, is analogous because, again, you're not just morally hectoring people about the undisputed <laughs> harm and suffering that's being done through animal research and testing. You're working to try and find a win-win. Again, look, we can, we can do things in a more ethical way, but it will also be more efficient and effective in achieving what should you know, what the aims of the industry should be in terms of better human health. It's a difficult role we have to play, to be honest, because there is the ethical argument and we don't, and you cannot deny that ethical argument as it pertains to animal suffering and you cannot deny that. And so it's, and so that, that provides a, another moral imperative for shifting without a doubt. There's also the ethical argument as it pertains to humans. Humans are harmed. We are harmed by an ineffective biomedical research system. Yep. So there's a, an ethical par- imperative for both humans and animals to change. But there is such a, we, we, will, we still face that pressure to not even discuss the ethical issues as it pertains to animals. I mean, and so that's a, a difficult line we have to constantly tread. It really is. And it's, we will get called out for saying, oh, you, you people really are here just because you care about the animal ethics. Right. Yeah. yeah, of course, we care about the animal ethics. Everyone should. But we also care about the human ethics. I'm a doctor and I have family members who have pretty significant illnesses and I care about them. But it's 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 a difficult role to play, honestly, because we are trying to appeal to scientists and yeah. show and work with scientists. But then some scientists will just say, oh, I, I don't want you, you guys also care about the ethics and you know why you know <laughs> yeah. uh, we don't want to work with you and that's ridiculous and but so it's, it's tricky different. isn't it you, it's almost like you, you need to take on a sort of deliberate cognitive dissonance to be able to be effective in driving the change that you want to see for all of those reasons for everything and we're, we're never going to we're not going to make everyone happy no matter what we yeah. do and yeah. how we do it but there is a strong ethical argument to move away from animal testing for animals and for humans and so that, but ultimately what's really going to make the change is not the ethical argument for animals. It really isn't. It's going to be the ethical argument for humans. And yeah. we know that, and that's, what's going to make the change. But if that's, and that's fine, we'll take it. And we, and it's good for us. We do care about human health being yeah. a sentient. Humans are sentient beings too. Exactly. And you, I, I, I care about you. I, I want to make sure that you live a good, healthy life. I like you. And so you. <laughs> I, I, I want you to have a good, healthy life as much as possible. I have dear friends who are some dear friends who have critical illnesses right now. That breaks my heart. And I, I want what's best for them, too. There's anyway, I, I think I'm rambling on. But the, the point is that there are many, so many good reasons to move away from animal testing regardless of where you're coming from. Yeah. It is a win-win. It's no another what. one of those yes. pretty obvious answers. We just need to work out how to get there. So yeah. it's, it's brilliant that you're driving that work forward. It's very distinctive. And I do think there's a parallel there because I, another funny example, not funny, but weird example. There was a very well-known public intellectual and uh, who on his podcast recently interviewed a couple of people from the Good Food Institute and the podcast host themselves still consumes animal products and isn't vegan. And they were the one talking about the animal ethics and the horrific suffering and harm. And the people from the Good Food Institute were almost embarrassedly not talking about that at all and just saying, look, it's cheap, fast, available, 
you know, low climate impact. And it was almost like the pe- I, I can imagine it feels a similar thing sometimes where the people you're talking to are talking more about animal ethics and you're saying, well, yep, but we don't need that. We're just going <laughs> to fix this for the for you selfish humans. That's fine. Uh, and you sort of have to bottle it up and, and work out ways of communicating effectively. It's, it's frustrating, but important work. So It is. I do know that the Good Food Institute is how they've been had probably gone through multiple identity crises as yeah. well <laughs> in trying to figure out how to navigate this. And that's what we're doing. We're trying to figure out how to navigate this so that we can create the change that that's needed. Yeah. I'm sure we'll make mistakes. We'll piss people off. And that's the nature of any anything. When anytime you're trying to change the status quo, that's yeah. the nature of things. But there's a win-win there for the taking. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much. It's been an absolute inspiration to talk to you and get to know you a little bit. Before we wrap up, how can people follow you, find out about your work and follow CCS? And of course, we haven't even mentioned your book, Our Symphony with Animals as well. How can people find your work and your thinking? Oh, okay. For the organization, you can just look up Center for Contemporary Sciences. It's www.contemporarysciences.org. So it's starts with contemporarysciences.org. Cool. And I'll include the links in the show notes as well. Okay, so. great. Thank you. And there's different ways to contact us as well. If you'd like to partner with us or help us in any way, we would love that. And as far as me personally, I also have a website. So you can just look up my name. You'll see my website. You'll see information about the book. The book really does explore empathy for animals. A lot of the things that we talked about here today. Starting how with basically- Sylvester. Starting with Sylvester, yeah, but also, and I'm trying not to make it a depressing book, it's really about how empathy for animals is necessary for human survival and how integral it is to our well-being, so that you can find on my, my website. Again, just Google my name and you'll see it. That's brilliant. It's been an honor to speak to you. Thank you for helping normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Just, <laughs> I think there's probably about 100 million of us so far. So we've got 7.7 billion left to persuade, but I think we'll get Oh, oh, oh boy. That's a long journey there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jamie. I had it's a, been a I real. Had, oh, I was going to say, yeah, I had a great time. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more, and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?